Kingway Fox Beard Lock is acting very weird Captain Pike Cisco's wife Klingons and the afterlife Boimler Tendy's dog Ransom is very harsh Four drive Black alert Giorgio has gone berserk Beat your bad left, Edward is an idiot, Fuck is dead, Wolf is wed, Chekhov's wearing red, Data's cat, Kempex cat, Q has had enough of that, Beat me up, make it so, everybody let's go! We are Welcome to the Klingon Show, guys. I'm Uncle Jim, coming to you live from my beautiful camp in Corinth, New York, just outside of Saratoga. I'm sitting on my deck, and it is a absolutely perfect, perfect evening. It's a great night to talk about Klingons. And with me, as usual, are my Trek experts, and we'll start off with Eric, who right now is in Portland, but soon is going to be in upstate New York. How you doing, Eric? I am doing great, Jim. Yes, I am leaving on a jet plane earlier, early tomorrow morning, and then I'll be seeing Jim this weekend uh, out at Treconderoga, and that is going to be a blast. And I just want to say to all of you guys, I hope that you die honorable deaths, and I hope to see you in Stovacor one day. Today is a good day to die. That's all I got to say. <laughs> it is. It is. And- Although... Although Kang in Blood Oath did say perhaps it is a good day to live. So another outlook. This, this is true. <laughs> and we also have with us from Las Vegas, we have our very own Charles. How are you doing tonight, Charles? I'm doing good. Um, <clears throat> the word of the day is the same as been for the past few weeks. Monsoons. We actually Monsoons. Are- Actually, about in corner of my watch, about 97 out. We should be about 104, but not quite as hot, but a lot more humid. Well, it's, and it's, logic says one should want to live. This is true, and I got to tell you, it is perfect weather here. There's no air conditioning at the Ticonderoga High School. So the last time I went as a Klingon, I sweat like a dog in a Chinese restaurant. It was awful. It was 90 degree. It was terrible. But um, hopefully this okay, night. Nice don't mid- bring the dog to Chinese restaurant. That's true. Don't do it and you'll be fine. Hopefully this mild yeah. weather holds up and uh, we'll have a great time at Truck Conderoga. So if you guys have listened to the podcast in the past, you know that I'm a huge, huge fan of Romulans. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. I'm that was a slip up. I'm a huge fan of Klingons, and so uh, I dress as a Klingon and I bring my batliff in the in the yard, and everyone wants to touch my batliff, and uh, they're welcome to it. Sometimes they want to hold it, and I'm more than happy to let them hold it, let them touch it, and they their eyes light up when they see my batliff. They just love my batliff. And uh, so, you know, I'm a fan of Klingons. And why am I a fan of Klingons? Well, 
It's not because of TOS. I was not a fan of Klingons on TOS. We're, we're going to talk about them in great detail, actually. But I'm a fan of Klingons because I turned on my TV for the premiere of Star Trek The Next Generation um, in September of 1987. And who did I see sitting there on the bridge? A Klingon. Mm-hmm. And right away, the I was like, yeah, the, the <laughs> Would turn Klingon. out to be the Klingon, yeah. I just said, wow, the, the, the mortal enemies of the Federation is now on the flagship of the Federation. Uh, I got to find out about this. I just, Worf became the man, and I became enamored with Klingons. Now, here's where it gets strange. Worf's version of Klingons is completely different than the version of Klingons that we were raised with on TOS. And we're going to talk about that quite a bit. And this podcast is basically a warm-up for what we're going to talk about at Trekkanaroga on Friday in the high school auditorium. I think it's from 3 to 4. Is that when it is? I think. I think it's from 3 to 4 in the high school you can go auditorium. To, you, can go to the web, you can go to the website for Trekkanaroga, and they do have an awesome schedule up there, and you can go right up there and confirm times for both of our panels. Yeah, I think it's 3 to 4 for on all Friday. Three of our panels, actually, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're all there. You can find us. And so I figured let's talk about some Klingons. And because it's the original set tour, we're probably going to spend a lot of time talking about the original series Klingons. But we're open to talk anything, any Klingon that anybody wants to talk about. And that's pretty much how we're, gonna, we're going to do it. And we just want to have some fun talking Klingons. So let's dive right in and talk about Klingons. So I have to say that my all-time favorite, favorite, favorite opening sequence I've ever seen in any movie to date, any movie, and I dare anyone to challenge me, is the motion picture opening sequence. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. Star Wars, maybe yeah. John Williams with Star Wars might come in close, but I think that Jerry Goldsmith and Star Trek the motion picture and the Klingon battle cruisers and Mark Leonard as the Klingon commander, that whole sequence to me is just just pure special. gold. Something, it's something just, special, really. It's like, just, it's, I mean, like it's a way that they brought, they literally took this race with that scene. They took this race that had kind of been developed a little bit in TOS. I mean, when you look back, there really aren't that many Klingon episodes in TOS. And, the, you know, you never, well, very seldom did you get to see, like, cool shots of ships. Um, there are a couple of space battles, but not really cool space battles. And that opening scene was a way to say, hey, the Klingons are back, and they are back in full force. They got a redesigned brand-new battlecruiser, which rivaled the flyby of the Enterprise in Space Deck, uh, in Space Dock. And uh, we got to see the Spinehead Klingons. Now, the Klingons have changed through the years, and that's fine with me. I'm really not going to delve too much into that, but they're different, and that's fine. Um, you know, Mark Leonard had the, what I call the Spinehead, um, which was an extension of their spine up over their forehead. Then, you know, they went to the turtle head that we saw later on because it was quicker and cheaper to mass produce them that way. And it all, what does it always come down to? money that's really what it comes down to how can we get these Mm -hmm. these aliens the quickest the fastest done Uh, and mark leonard's makeup took hours and hours to do and they say we got to we got to cut that down 
if we're going to have a Klingon on the show. So the awesome Michael Westmore came up with the turtle head that we're all so familiar with. Not to be compared to what they did on Discovery, which went back to the hours and hours and hours of makeup again to make them truly alien. And, and again, they're Klingons just as well. And while we're talking about different Klingons, let's throw in the JJ Klingons that had, when he took off his helmet, had that little gold piercing in his ring. Rings. Rings. And in my mind, I like to think that might have been rank of some type. We don't really know. I love it. I love that look, and I love the blue eyes on those Klingons, too. Like, that is just super creepy to have, like, the rings and the blue eyes on this race that looks so alien and even even foreign to the to the Klingons that we knew up until that time. So, yeah. So we have now touched on all the different races of Klingons in the first opening scene of our podcast. Okay. So we're not leaving anybody out. Okay. Jim, let's be, let's be clear. Then if we, what that all culminates in is over time, we've seen tons and tons of Klingons, right? And what did the awesome and very intelligent story writers of Star Trek Discovery do. They said, you know what, guys, we would really like to resolve this into some way that make that, you know, makes sense from a canon standpoint and, you know, actually takes into consideration the things that we want to do with our story to move it forward. And in Discovery, we get 24 different houses of Klingons. And in that one show alone, we get to see a dozen or more different Klingon looks. You've got the guy with the long mustache and the relatively smooth forehead, and you've got the Klingon with the super spiny forehead, and you've got the Klingon who wears adornment. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, so, that's <laughs> so Discovery, to me, just like did it, did it right because they said, you know what, we're trying to bring everybody together. What's this all about? It's about bringing the family together. It's about trying to make one out of many and many out of one. So let's do it. Let's bring them together. And let me tell you, I... For that reason, not only do I not have a problem with the way that Discovery handled the Klingons, I actually think that it was absolutely the right thing to do, and it just makes it just makes a whole lot of sense, and it gives them a lot of room to grow within the Star Trek universe in the future. And after all, Jim, I love the Turtlehead Klingon. There is no question. Do I need to see a Turtlehead Klingon every time? No. Why? Because when I look at human beings, do I see a uh, pale-skinned European every time I look around? No. I see all kinds of different colors and shapes and, uh, you know, sorts of people. So why not Klingons? Exactly. And, and the, the Klingons are a race of conquerors. So when they conquer a planet, they're going to take their, their, their prizes. And I think it's, it's only reasonable to, to believe that the Klingons are going to mate with the, the races that they conquer. And the Klingon empire is huge. So you're going to have different, you know, genetic yeah, mixing. material yeah, totally. mixing yep. from, from, you know, planet to planet in the empire. So you here's know? what I'm really interested in, Jim, when the Klingons go out to conquer something, because this exactly ties into what you're talking about. When they go out to conquer something, it seems to me that there are both Klingons who are directed by the High Council to go out and do stuff, and then there are a fair number of pirate Klingons out there, 
Um, we have pirate Klingons in the movies. We have pirate Klingons in uh, episodes, right? So the Klingon empire may be united, but not every Klingon attack out there is directed by the high council, so to speak. No, we saw that. Actually, we've seen that more often than not. Star Trek three, you know, uh, Commander Krug was an unsanctioned attack. Star Trek V was an unsanctioned maneuver. So the Klingons seem to kind of just kind of go out and do whatever they want, whenever they want, you know, or, or at so, least some of them do. So to me, that's really interesting because here they put up this kind of front of unified Klingon empire. There's a strong kind of, um, I think, genetic component, which is a little Aryan in nature, a little like Nazi in nature, but I don't, I'm not saying they're fascist necessarily, but they definitely believe that the Klingon way is the only way and that the Klingon genetics are the best genetics. Um, and so when they go out there, you know, somehow the Klingon empire has to survive, which in our society would mean taxes, right? Like presumably the Federation would go out there and the, the tax back to the Federation as a whole is uh, or are, let's say, the resources that they that the explorers collect while they're out there. And we're talking physical resources like rocks and stuff. We're also also talking cultural resources, you know, people, knowledge, um, shared technology, that kind of stuff. So the Federation has this kind of, you know, the ship is out there. It sends everything back to Central and Central has all the knowledge. Presumably, the Klingon Empire would have the same thing, but they seem more diasporate than that. So I just think that's kind of interesting, given that they're, they put up this front of being totally unified, right? Yeah, and the other thing that we need to talk about with the Klingons is something people seem to think that every single Klingon is a warrior and that that's all they do is run around, you know, conquering and killing. But that's not the case, obviously. They have, we know that they have... Um, judges and they have a legal system because we've seen that on uh on enterprise and so they have to have you know uh, they have to have artisans they have to have engineers they have to have doctors they have to have more than just warriors but we've never seen them well maybe we've seen glimpses of them here and there but mostly we see the cast yeah yeah no you're totally right and that's what they really focus on in star trek we have seen glimpses here and there and we also saw, in my opinion, what a sham their legal system actually is in Star Trek VI, right? That's like the ultimate, like, <laughs> it's pretty clear these two guys didn't do the thing that you said that, they're do- that they did, and yet they're absolutely going to be convicted and, be- and sent to Ruripente no matter what. That was the vibe that I got off of that legal scene in Star Trek VI. So it doesn't seem and like – what's that? Go ahead. An ex- excellent, excellent episode of enterprise called judgment where Archer oh, yeah. gets arrested and sent to Rorapente with his lawyer, uh, who I think is played by JG Hertzler. If I remember correctly, I think you're correct. I don't remember the character's and name, but I do remember it. With I him, think yeah. it's JG Hertzler. And we learn about the Klingon system and how Archer was already found guilty before they even had the trial. See? And uh, so tell me so, how that's honorable. Tell me how that's exactly. honorable. And I believe that I think that a lot of what we learn about the Klingons, we learn from Worf. Worf is the most honorable Klingon, but every Klingon that we meet is not honorable or not as honorable as Worf would want them to be. 
Well, because and Worf I think seems to preach the gospel yeah. of it. Yeah, and Worf definitely preaches the gospel of Klingon honor being connected to Klingon culture, right? Remember when he starts teaching, I don't remember the episode, but when he starts teaching the young person about Klingon culture to start with and um you know, it's like you, the way you achieve honor <laughs> is by learning about your culture. So there's that connection for him. And, and he tells Alexander, yeah. when Alexander goes to school and he, and he beats up all the other kids and steals the blocks and Worf comes and pulls them to the side and says, you don't gain honor by defeating the weak. You gain honor by defeating the strong. So, yeah. you know, Worf's version of Klingons, it might be a little different than the reality of Klingons, which is why, you know, he sided with Dura or with Gowron against Dura. <laughs> Dura <laughs> but then Gowron turned out to be just as crooked and Worf later had to kill him and Martok became the chancellor. But I want to talk a little bit uh, because uh, Trek Honoroga is going to be, uh, you know, the TOS type of stuff. So I wanted to uh, start off talking about the original Klingons that we saw. Now, you guys know the first Klingon we ever saw on Star Trek? Mm. Is it Kang Korokolov? Is it one of those? It was was an Errand of Mercy episode with the Organians. And they actually appeared in the episodes Errand of Mercy, Friday's Child, The Trouble with Tribbles, and Alana Troyes. And that's what we've seen as far as Klingons on TOS. And the interesting, interesting thing about it is that one of the Klingons that we see in um, uh, a private little war, actually, um, was a real, was a real, uh, what's the word? He was like a Ferengi. He was a cowardly Klingon. Uh, his name was Krell, and he was selling weapons to the people, uh, the villagers in that particular episode. And um, he was like a really spiny, spineless, like Ferengi uh, type of Klingon, actually, which, which goes against, you know, everything that we ever want to see. And then another Klingon that people forget about, uh, because Korkang and Koloth steal the show, Another Klingon that people forget about is Crass and Friday's Child. And he was another weaselly, backstabbing, Ferengi type of a Klingon working, you know, in the shadows behind the scenes. And when the Enterprise showed up, his ship ran away. They were, they were afraid to face the Enterprise and go into battle. And they, they ran away and uh, abandoned him, basically, on the planet. Of course, he was dead, but I don't think they knew that. At least they never clarified that in the episode uh the ship just left they flew away and left him behind uh so other than Korkang and Koloth those are the Klingons that we have seen on on TOS and the episodes that they appeared in which which you know is different than what Worf says Klingons are and the Batleth we see it on Enterprise I don't know I don't know if we saw it on Enterprise but we definitely see it on Discovery which takes place before TOS, but we never see a uh, Klingon on TOS with, with a bat lift. And this is, this uh, is where people have to kind of cannon with a grain of salt, uh, please. 
Because even though it's all canon, the reason why you don't see a Batleth on TOS is because they hadn't invented it yet, right? Plain mm-hmm. and simple. Right. It hadn't been created yet. So they can't, you know, they didn't create that until Wharf, until TNG. So how could it appear in the 60s when it wasn't actually created till the 80s? So when you're talking about, about uh, you know, Klingons and you're, you're, you start quoting your canon and your sources, uh, just, just bear in mind that a lot of the stuff wasn't around. When they, when they did Star Trek, they had no idea that 57 years later we'd be having a podcast talking about it. They just didn't know. Right, Jim. And there's, and there's absolutely no reason uh, similarly to draw a line in the sand and say Klingon canon knowledge stops here and you shall not invent any more new canon. That, that is not a line that I think anybody who watches Star Trek actually wants drawn. I'm, I'm interested in the evolution of characters and evolution of different races on the show, right? Like I want to learn about how deep the Romulans go and how deep the Klingons go and how deep all of these other races go. It just makes it more interesting. And anybody who has any issues with, um, and I'm with, with Trek that they, that has come out in the last like five or six years and doesn't have an issue with TNG as you know, or didn't have an issue if they're old enough. <laughs> most of them, are, most of the ones who were complaining probably weren't old enough to actually watch it when it came out. But uh, to me, that's an inconsistent point of view, right? Because T, like yeah. you're saying, TNG absolutely modified what the Klingons were all about. Not only did they get the turtle heads, but they got the honor, and that became a really big part of their culture. And that was not a big part of their culture in TOS, no matter. How many times you try and go back to TOS and pick out little lines here and there that you think are consistent with that? No. In TOS, honestly, the Klingons were kind of dirty and sort of piratey and, you know, without honor, I would say. (laughs) They were different Klingons than what we would see on TNG for sure. And the other thing that Charles Charles was going to say something. Charles. Yes. Were you going to say sorry, something? Sorry, I was just trying No, I didn't. Oh, okay, sorry. I thought you were saying something. Never mind. So another thing that I think is fascinating about Klingons is that they have their own language. And uh, just to prove that, here, here is the Klingon drinking song. Okay, now we're going. This is the Klingon warrior's anthem. I played the General Martok on Deep Space Nine. And this is how they go. Oi, Kaylas, Now, is that not cool or what? That, that was cool. awesome. So you know, cool. J.G. Hertzler. So the Klingons got their own language. And in Star Trek The Motion Picture, uh, they asked James Doohan to 
come up with the language. And so he did the Klingon language and the Vulcan language. The Vulcan language was just backwards English. And uh, the Klingon language was just kind of made up guttural sounds. And Mark Okren came along and tweaked what James Dewan did and created the actual Klingon language for Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. And they, there's a Klingon language institute. You can go and, and read the entire original Shakespeare and its original Klingon. And Klingon really, really took off after that. So they have their own language. They have their own their own, uh, I, I don't want to say religion, but Kales is a religious figure. Would you agree? Yeah, like I a, think, I think, well, here's what I, I will say. And I think this is a perspective that maybe not, not every American, uh, might necessarily be able to kind of clue into, but to me, Klingons have both their cultural identity and a religious identity. And to me, those things kind of flow in and out of each other and can be separate and can be the same. And so, so to me, that's much more like Judaism in a lot of ways, because you have a lot of Jews who are cultural Jews in the United States, I'm talking, who may not necessarily do a lot of religious practice, but still identify as Jewish culturally. I think you have Klingons that are like that. They identify as Klingons, and some kind of believe in the mystique of Kales, and some are just like, no, dude, I just want to go out and, like, conquer planets and get cool stuff. <laughs> right. Exactly. But let's, all, but let's also say the fact that a lot of people believe in heaven. You have a lot of Klingons who believe in Silvercore. That's yeah, which, still a rooted. That's still a rooted connection to religion. And I so uh, Charles, do you want to talk about Stovacor and the recent book that we just read, uh, Rogue Elements, and kind of the like representation of Stovacor that we get in that book, <laughs> which I think uh, is awesome. Well, I think it's I think it's one Klingon's interpretation of Stovacor. Right. Exactly, but it's. it's but it's a tavern where Klingon, honorable Klingons end up to exist. And in this existence, it's not the old age Klingon who's in this tavern. It is the young warrior. It is the time in which the Klingons got their, made their name for themselves. And in this case, you do see Kalis up there barkeeping. A little bit of spoiler. But it's like, okay, but he's out there listening. He's talking to the warriors. He wants to know how they feel. He's welcoming people. You want to feel welcome in Stovacor. And it's the fact is, it's not just anybody who goes to Silvercore. It's the proud warriors that die in battle that will go. And it's a place of honor. And I think that does show a sign of religion because that place is special to them. They will cry. You'll see the fact that Klingons will cry for the death of one of their brothers. Look up at the sky and wail. The fact is, when they're done, and when they're done, they're like, it's a husk. 
they've already traveled. To, they've already been welcomed to Stovacor. I, you know, and that to me is such an interesting cultural thing as opposed to the way that we do it, right? Which is that most of the time, at least in Western culture, we're, we're preserving our bodies. We're, um, you know, often putting them on display at a funeral to kind of like help people with closure and that sort of stuff. And the Klingons don't believe in that. They just think that the body yep. is, uh, use the word husk. I think that's an absolutely yeah, exactly. perfect description, Charles. Yeah. Yes, well, that's exactly not, the words they use. Let's not forget the flip side. We have Feklar, who's the guardian of Grethor, which is where the dishonored Klingons go. Mm, the Klingon hell. The Klingon hell, exactly. The Klingon hell. So they, they have a heaven and they have a hell. So even though they, they have killed their gods, that's not entirely true because they still have uh, some type of faith-based belief system. Yeah, to me, one of the cool things about Klingon religion is that they seem to really take what's important out of it. Like, I think a lot of Klingons, if you ask them, <laughs> this, I'm going to go headcanon here for a second. I don't have any backup for this, but I, I'm just going to say, based on the evidence that I've seen in TNG, if you were to go and ask a bunch of Klingons um, whether they straight up believed, believed, so to speak, in Kalos and, and all of the stories that, that you know, Kalos supposedly did, they would probably tell you no. But if you ask them if Kalos was important in their lives and actually a part of kind of something that they think about, I would bet you that most of them would say yes, which I think is very interesting because that to me parallels um, Western religion because I think that there are a lot of people, I'm just speaking from the United States perspective, who maybe go to church, maybe don't go to church, but absolutely believe in God, right? And so it's not about the dogma for them. It's about like the base belief. And I think the Klingons are the same way. There's like a, there's like a base belief where you can believe in Kayla. So you can kind of not believe in Kayla really, but one way or another, you've got this connection, which I think is cool. Absolutely. There's, there's Klingons have something. So like when you have a Klingon, like, uh, like Duras who poisons Kim Peck, which is dishonorable plants bombs inside the arms of his own people, which is dishonorable, and uh, then turns around and, and kills Kalar, which is dishonorable, and, and then Worf kills him in an honorable way. Do you think that Duras is doing all this, th- this stuff and, and saying to himself, oh, I can't wait to meet Feklar when I go to Grethar because I'm a dishonorable no. Klingon? No, or, dude. I think you, if you're doing that kind of stuff, I don't think you believe in Stovacor. Right, because if you actually believe in Stovacor, you are not going to do something that risks besmirching your honor before the day you die. A, number one, you got to die in battle. B, you got to make sure that you don't do stuff that is (laughs) not honorable, which I think includes like lying, cheating, and stealing, right? And probably a few other things. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I think that I think that's right. Remember, remember in the book, they talk about certain Klingons who were not in Stovacor. They never reached Stovacor. 
including that's right including um including the one that uh was it five or six with the Klingon that was trying to I think it was six the Klingon that was trying to uh involved with the destruction of the home world. They talked about Chang? him in the book. Was that Chang? Might have been Chang. The one that did so much dishonor to the Klingon home world. And they had the image of him in the explosion. Huh. Yeah. Not sure. Hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, even the book they, even in the book they talked about the fact that certain Klingons were not in Stovacor. They did not honorably die and deserve to be there. Yeah, and it's not. And there's that purgatory place in the in the Rogue Elements book, which I think is interesting. So you know, same concepts that that Western religion would have: heaven, purgatory, hell. Um, but, you know, in Stovacor, presumably uh, your greatest joy is drinking blood wine and, um, you know, hanging out with your friends. And so, Jim, what I have decided is that I'm going to sprinkle these rather than collect them all at the end. So being the Klingon fan that you are, I'm going to sprinkle a few trivia questions throughout the remainder of the show. And I'm going to challenge you as the biggest Klingon fan on the show to answer the trivia questions. And then hopefully what it does is it, you know, just gives our listeners a little bit more knowledge about Klingons as well. Are you ready? I'm ready. So related exactly to what we were just talking about, blood wine, uh, give me some sort of measure from Star Trek as to how powerful alcoholic wise, how powerful blood wine is. How powerful is, I mean, like, what's the alcohol content of? Yeah, you can give me a number or you can give me a comparison, but there is a measure within Star Trek as to how powerful Bloodline is. I think that it's extremely uh, um, uh, powerful. Yeah. Give me uh, me something that's like, you know, approximately something. Yeah. I want to say it's, it's right up there with Romulan Ale. Uh, okay, how about a real-world alcohol? Do you have any real-world comparisons at all? Uh, Did Chekhov ever compare it to Watka? 110 Did proof. Jack Daniels, maybe? <laughs> it's pretty good, yeah. It's, I will tell you, here's your hint. It is, it is compared to whiskey. So compared to whiskey, apparently Klingon blood wine is apparently twice... <laughs> Twice as powerful as whiskey. So you take your, your kind of standard whiskey, which is probably about, you know, 80 proof or so, 40% alcohol. That means that blood wine, real blood wine, you guys, is upwards of 160 proof alcohol. Woof. That's pretty wow. spicy. Yeah. That, that yeah. Is. I feel like I one glass of that and I'd be under the table. I feel like that's about it. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, if you want a comparison of that, is uh, Bacardi 151. 
There you go. If and you can drink a goblet, very <laughs> a goblet of wow. Bacardi 151, um, can you put that down cool. and, and still stand still? I don't think so. Well, guys, uh, we got to take our very first commercial break, uh, our, actually our only commercial break of this podcast. So run to the microwave, get your chicken bites, get your pizza bites, get your chicken wings. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Trek Talking would like to invite you and your friends to ease your way back into the Star Trek event scene by joining us August 19th through the 21st at Trek Conderoga 2022, the biggest little Star Trek event in Ticonderoga, New York. Headliners Gates McFadden, John Delancey, and Brent Spiner will be giving photo ops, autographs, and will be participating in celebrity guest talks. Trek Talking will also be in attendance as Uncle Jim and Eric chair discussion panels on Klingons and Starfleet Admirals. Tour the original series set tours, play some mini golf, or attend an award-winning Elvis tribute show. There is something for everyone at Trek Ponderoga. We hope to see you there. Engage. That's right, guys. We'll be at Trek Conderoga this upcoming weekend. If you're in the area, please stop by and say hello. We have some really awesome Trek Talk and T-shirts. We've got some coffee mugs. We have a lot of other stuff that's going to be on our table, and we'd love to see you there. So back to our Klingon conversation. So I think that the Klingons, I think, have become one of the most, uh, I think, popular races that we've seen on Star Trek, at least one of the most fleshed-out races. We know a little bit about the Romulans. We know a lot about the Fringy from Quark on DS9, but I think the Klingons take the cake. I think. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we wouldn't. I don't think we would have ever gotten a fleshed out if it hadn't been for Worf. Worf was exactly. our connection to the Klingon Empire, and as Worf's character got deeper and more in depth, the more we got to learn about. The Klingon Empire. Absolutely, we we learned it through Worf. There was a lot of great Worf um, uh, story arcs on TNG, Redemption, Sins of the Father, that type of stuff. And then on DS9, we had a really great episode called Blood Oath, which brought back Kor Kang and Koloth again oh. together, which is a Such great a episode. episode as well. And Kor. The drunken Dahar master survives it all and goes on to go on a quest for KOS's sword with Worf, which is pretty cool. And, and we also see and Kang Jim, on a, oh, yeah. go ahead. We also see oh. Kang again on an episode of Voyager, which came out for the 25th anniversary called Flashback, where Janeway goes back to Star Trek VI with Tuvok, who was on the Excelsior with Captain Sulu. And we actually get to see the Excelsior getting to the Enterprise for Star Trek VI, and they run into Kang and his battle cruiser. So, um, yeah, I think those are that's it. I don't think we see them again after that. I think I touched on all of them, didn't I? Did I miss uh, any? Seems like a, a pretty good list. Yeah. I think that was it. So, if you're looking, to, if you want to find out about the Klingons, that's that's where you go. Now, there was a lot. There was a couple episodes of Voyager. Where uh, where um, Balana Taurus is what going episode? to oh, yeah. yeah, and she's on the barge of the dead with her mother. Yeah, that's true. And 
and something about Klingons through there. There's another one called Prophecy where they yeah. find a D7 battlecruiser, you know, cruising around out there, and they're looking for the chosen one. So these are like a religious group that broke off from the Klingons because they didn't believe the Klingon um, uh, myths. So they, they went off in search of their own gods, and they thought it was Balana Taurus. And that episode is called Prophecy, and that's an interesting one as well. And, Jim, that was, of course, Voyager, so that's set in the Delta Quadrant. So uh, here's another one for you, uh, trivia question number two. In which quadrant is the Klingon homeworld, Kronos, located? The Beta Quadrant. It is in the Beta Quadrant, so it is not in the Alpha Quadrant. It is in the Beta Quadrant, just next door. Yeah, right around the corner. And one of the best episodes, I think, if you want to learn about Klingons, is a first season. Yes, I said first season episode of TNG called Heart of Glory, where these three Klingons come aboard the Enterprise, make friends with Worf, and they try to talk him into stealing the Enterprise because it would be glorious to die in battle. And (laughs) uh, that's where we see the Klingon death yell for the first time. We see that the Klingon weapons on their armor and they can take it apart to build a weapon, which was really cool. And we see the first appear, actually the first and only to my knowledge appearance of the Klingon defense force. I Mm. don't think that we've ever heard Klingon defense force after that. Are you guys Mm -hmm. aware of any purpose to Klingon defense force after that? Cause I'm not. Uh, I don't think so. No. I mean, Klingon defense force just kind of comes up in that, in that one episode um, and wait, is there a, is there a DS nine episode too? I feel like there's a couple of DS nine episodes where the Klingon defense force, I'm quickly Googling to find out. And I am finding that apparently maybe they show up in DS nine's apocalypse rising and once more into the breach, which I don't know how I pulled that out, but uh I feel like I saw him on DS9 one time, but I, uh, yeah, that's about what I got for you. <laughs> so the Klingon Defense Force kind of steps in, and yeah. Commander Kinefra comes in his D7 battlecruiser to pick up the traitors and bring them to have the, the meat picked from their bones in the desert of Kling. And mm. uh, so there's that going on as well, oh. which is a great Klingon-centric episode. Actually, Jim, there is reference to the reference to the Klingon Defense Force even in Star Trek Three. Ooh, way back in Star Trek Three. That's funny. Yeah, it's one of those I don't, things. I don't that, recall. Like, I don't recall hearing that. It's like a total sideline, probably. Yeah. So the you know the, so the Klingons basically have a very rich, very deep history, which is fascinating, in the words of Mr. Spock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and if you look at their history and their culture, we're talking a lot about war and stuff. So Jim, do you want to talk just a little bit about their ships? Yeah. So Klingon, yeah, Klingon ship design. First of all, let's preface this by saying, which we already mentioned. It all comes down to money, that budgets, basically, uh, because they built a brand new Klingon ship and for Star Trek III, the search for Spock, the Klingon bird of prey. 
And they went on to use that ship in every single Klingon episode that we ever saw through, through everything was the, was the Klingon bird of prey. And they explained it, and I think this is a very lame excuse myself. They just say that it's a bigger version of that ship. So we have a Kavort class, which is the size of a galaxy class. And we have uh, different scout ships, which is what we saw in Star Trek Three. We have battleships, and, and there's all different classes of the bird of prey. But I don't buy into that. To me, that doesn't make any sense for one simple reason. When we see them loading a photon torpedo into a photon torpedo bay, how big is the photon torpedo? It's about the size of a coffin, right? Give or take? Yep. So I think it's safe to assume that a Klingon photon torpedo is approximately the same size. Well, if you take the Klingon bird of prey and the photon torpedo launchers right at the front of the bridge, and you make the Klingon bird of prey the size of the galaxy-class starship, that means the photon torpedo bay at the front of the bridge the size of the Lincoln Tunnel, which means the photon torpedoes that they're firing are like asteroids. They're huge. You just can't say that everything is made bigger and that solves the problem. So I never really bought into that. It's just a bigger version of the ship. But at any rate, we also have the Klingon D7 battlecruiser, which we first saw in TOS, which has remained all the way up into Deep Space Nine. We've seen it in Voyager. Uh, we saw it in Star Trek, the motion picture, and that beautiful opening sequence. And I think that that's the most common uh, battle cruiser. When, when um, Kim Peck became the, the chancellor of the uh, Klingon High Command, he had the Vorcha designed and built for himself. And we saw that quite frequently on Deep Space Nine as well. And not to be outdone, when Gowron became chancellor, he had to have his own ship designed for himself, which was the Negvar, which we see making its first appearance in Deep Space Nine, the way of the warrior. And uh, we all have also seen a couple of ships on Enterprise. We saw a Klingon D5, which is a variant on the Bird of Prey. And we see a Klingon freighter. And we see a Klingon raptor in the Dogs of War, which um, is a, a little small it's a small ship, smaller than the Klingon Bird of Prey, I do believe. And um, I think that's the extent of the Klingon ships that we've seen. To this well, point. yeah, I mean, uh, as long as you stay out of Discovery Realm, because if you go into Discovery Realm, there are a whole bunch of other Klingon ships uh, all the way down yeah. to fighter size and all the way up to the sarcophagus ship size. Yeah, and I don't know all the names of all of those um, ships, so I didn't want I didn't want to venture down that path. I know there's the Cleave ship. We I, I know that yeah. we have that. Yeah, um, I think I, I think there's two. Yeah, there's two that yeah. they're mentioning. I think just from the Discovery area, and that's the Cleave ship uh, is number one, which I think bears mentioning simply because it is something special, right? It is an absolutely massive ship that is probably, I haven't really looked this up, but on screen, it looks to be at least twice the size of the Europa, which is a extremely large <laughs> ship, and it just tears through the hull, so it must have enormous mass to be able to do that in space. So I think the Cleave ship is just a really, really cool thing. And then, of course, we have the sarcophagus ship, which is the ship that Michael Burnham 
um, fights the Klingon on, kills the Klingon, kind of ends up leading to the whole battle at the binary stars. And this kind of goes back to Stovacor and our Klingon death discussion. They literally in Discovery have this ship where the Klingon dead are mounted to the outside of the hull. And we get a little bit of information about that in Discovery, but we don't get a lot of information. And to me, one of the greatest kind of travesties of leaving uh, the prequel centuries behind, although I do love Discovery in the 32nd century, there's no question, but one of the travesties of leaving that behind is not being able to explore the Klingon culture of that era just a little bit more. And that, my friends, is the only reason that I am excited about a possible Section 31 show because I just want one more show set in that era, that original Discovery era before they jump to the future, because I want to know more about those Klingons. I want to know more about that sarcophagus ship. Why do they mount their dead to the outside of the ship? I don't know. Don't you kind of want to well, know? Sounds interesting. I, I believe, I, I, I hope, I hope that we see Laurel show up on Strange New Worlds in season two. Saying. Because yep. Laurel and kind of have this uneasy uh, relationship. And so I hope we see Laurel again. And if I remember correctly, one of the, um, one of the awesome comic books that we read, which I think actually was, uh, the, was it The Blood of Kaelas, Charles? What was the name of that one? Was it The Blood of Kaelas? Whispers of Kaelas? Um, something about Kaelas. And um, in that particular story, we find out about, uh, well, we, a little bit about the Klingons and where the, um, uh, why they keep the bodies on the outside of the ship because uh, Takuma and his followers broke away from the traditional Klingon beliefs, and that's why they were out there. They, they were different that might than have the, been the light of Kaelas. Yes, yeah, that's the, the light of Kaelas. Yeah. The light, the, yeah, well, this, yeah. Uh, but that still doesn't explain to us, like, what the symbolism is. I guess that's what I was going for, right, is I want to know more about that religious kind of dogmatic aspect because Takuvma, like, the, his whole deal is, is the religion of being a Klingon, right? And, and I feel like we kind of dive down that direction. But, man, wouldn't it be cool if, if somebody, yeah, like you're saying, Laurel, maybe on Strange New Worlds, or maybe on another show, allowed us to explore that that side of Klingon culture just a little more. And uh, they also explain a little bit in Discovery why the ships looked so different on Discovery because when uh, Ash Tyler, Vogue, comes back to the Klingon Empire with all the knowledge that he had gained from being in the Federation, he designs the Klingon D7 which Laurel has commissioned and shows up in the finale of Deep Space Nine, such sweet, I mean, Discovery, such sweet sorrow, uh, season two. And we actually get to see that would be the first time that a D7 was actually seen. And that's when they brought the Klingon houses together, because if you remember in Discovery, all the houses had their own separate shifts. They were all different. There was no unity in the Empire at that point in time. And then after Laurel takes over, um, the D7s became the, the unified ship of the Klingon Empire instead of everybody having their own little ship. And that's when they became, you know, basically the D7 became the symbol of the Klingon Empire at that point. Yep. 
Yep, cool, cool hologram of the D7 when it's introduced in uh, Discovery there. And uh, yeah, so and also Lorel, well, this is an interesting fact, and this is another one of those things where you you have to take your canon with a grain of salt because um, when Duras, uh, we are clearly told by Gowron that women cannot hold a seat on the council. So the uh-huh. Duras sisters come find this Torrell guy from underneath a rock somewhere, and he's the, the illegitimate son of Duras, and therefore he can be the chancellor. But that's not entirely, but that, that right there is a violation of their own canon, because in Star Trek VI, who becomes the chancellor after Gorkhan is killed? His uh, daughter, Azipur. She's yep. a woman. And who yep. becomes the chancellor? Uh, I don't know what, who the chancellor was pre-Laurel. Uh, but Laurel becomes the chancellor, and she says, you can call me mother. And yep. she becomes the, the, the chancellor. She is a, also a woman. So, you know, they kind of break their own canon as they go along. Uh, so, you know, and, 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 and gatekeepers will point to that as a reason to hate the show and it doesn't count and it's not real and blah, blah, blah. But things change, you know. Well, uh, and put, Jim, maybe, power maybe. changes, opinions change, things change. You know, look what's changing and, in our country right now, you know. Well, and, uh, yeah, and, Janet, and, and we just talked about how canon is adjusted along the way, too, as years go by. So, you know chill out and enjoy star trek but jim this is a yeah. this is a perfect time to like insert one more trivia question for you because it's about klingon chancellors how many klingon chancellors have we heard mentioned or seen on screen in all of star trek not including books and stuff but just just the on-screen mentions or on-screen uh, appearances well let's see well we saw kim peck get assassinated by duras we there saw, you go, one. Of, of course, we saw uh, Gowron become chancellor. That's number we two. We saw Martok become chancellor when Worf killed uh, Gowron. We and saw I'll give you this one, And I'll give you this one for free. Worf was briefly chancellor, right? So plus Laurel, that's five. That's true. When War, you're, you're right. When Worf killed him, he became chancellor, and he gave it to Martok. Yep. Yep. Uh, so, yeah. So technically, yes, Worf was briefly chancellor. Then we had Laurel. I don't know yep. who Laurel replaced. I, I, if they ever mentioned the name, I do not know. But we had, we had Khan. We had Azapur. Yep. yep. And I don't know. I, and, and now, I don't know. It, did Gorkhan replace Laurel? Is there another one well, in between? According to, according to Memory Alpha, Gorkhan replaced Laurel. Um, he, he sometime, yeah, we don't really know when, but we know when Laurel became and we know when Gorkhan died and there's only like a, there's a less than 40 year range there. So presumably there was a handover. Laurel supposedly took over from somebody named Emrek. Uh, and that is, uh, mentioned in, uh, Enterprise. So that's, that's how we know that one. And then there are a couple of unnamed chancellors that also come, um, from the Enterprise era, we've got one from the Expanse episode, and we've got one from Broken Bow. Both are unnamed, and both are different people. And if we then go just all the way back to what Memory Alpha has at its very beginning, and Jim, you did very, very well. You got, I think, like uh, seven out of eleven, which is pretty good. 
you got Lorel, Gorkon, Azibur, Kempek, Gauron, Worf, and Martok. And then we just add Emrek, Malga, and the two unnamed ones. And we have 11 total chancellors that have showed up in Star Trek. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Which coincidentally is the same number of Spocks. Hmm. And, and you know what? And that <laughs> makes sense because, because Laurel, Laurel uh, uh, doesn't have the warring type of, of um, outlook towards the Federation. Mm-hmm. And 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 it, it makes sense that Gorkon would be the one to sue for peace if he took over for Lorel because Lorel I don't think Lorel was was about to go to war with the Federation either. At least I didn't get that impression from her when we saw. Yeah, her. so I'd be I'd be very interested to know what the succession was between Lorel and Gorkon. You know, obviously, well, I'm assuming he didn't kill her, <laughs> so maybe she just died of <laughs> old age. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. And there was that really great episode of Discovery where we see the battle for the chancellorship going on, and we find out about their son, and uh, and uh, we we see Emperor Giorgio show up when she was working for Section Thirty One, and uh, that whole political fight for control, which was an excellent episode, and they had Pink Blood as well, which is something I think I need to touch on as well. Another canon thing. You know, blood, Klingon blood has always been red. And the reason why it's always been red is because people have red blood, and that, that's just the way it was. But when they made Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, there was a lot of violence in that movie. People blowing off their arms, getting their chests getting shot open, blood floating in space, puddle of blood on the table. It was very bloody. And um, they got a rating R. And they didn't want an R-rated Star Trek. So what did they do? What did they do? What did they do, Charles? How did they adjust they that? Colored all the, they, they colored all the blood um, pink. Um, I can't think of the specific pink, color that we pinkish think purple, about. Lavenderish. What's, <laughs> no, what's the medication? Magenta. Pepto-bismol <laughs> pink. Yeah. <laughs> they just went into the film and they changed of the red to pink and boom, PG. So that is the actual reason why Klingon blood is pink and not red. And if you watch Discovery, you will notice that the Klingon blood is pink. Which which is also, a which is pink also that, pink in lower decks. Yes, yes, it is. Yes. Which, by the way, I just watched one of my favorite. We're going to talk about it on Thursday, but Weege Dudge, Weege Dudge, is an outstanding episode of Lower Decks that involves Klingons, which I loved, and we'll talk about that on Thursday. But guys, we are out of time. Oh, Can you believe? Yes, I know it happened so quickly. Yeah, unbelievable. But listen, we're going to be back on Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel. I'll be sitting out here on my deck again. Have doing a show. Uh, it's beautiful. Hopefully, it's not going to rain, and it'll be nice. And getting prepared for Trek Conoroga and meeting Eric for the first time, which I'm really spiked about. Um, my buddy from Canada, J.P. Carden, is going to be meeting us there as well. I haven't seen him since pre-COVID, so I'm really psyched. And we'll be talking about Star Trek Lower Decks Season 2 in preparation for the premiere of Season 3. So, you guys, over to our 
Facebook page at Trek Talking and Beyond. And you can give us a like and give us a follow over there. We'd love to have you as part of our Trek Talking family. Because, as I always say, Star Trek fans are the best fans. And that is true. So I'm your most excellent host, Uncle Jim. And I want to say thank you so much to Eric for hanging out and Trek Talking with us tonight, Talking Klingon. Thank you, Eric. You bet. Thanks a ton, guys. And thank you so much to our very own Charles from Las Vegas for hanging out and, and truck talking about Klingons with us. Thank you so much, Charles. Thank you. A lot of fun. And I think I'm going to do a little bit of what Eric did. I'm doing up some trivia for my Star Trek Club Wednesday. I think I'll throw some of the uh, Lower Decks trivia in in that episode. Nice. You know, Lower Decks is a lot just... Of Star uh, Trek Great. A lot of good Star Trek Easter eggs. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I had a lot of fun rewatching. Well, I'll talk about that on Thursday. Anyway, oh, we will talk about yeah. Lower Decks on Thursday. We have a lot. We have a lot of Lower Decks news to talk about as well. I tried to find some good stuff, and we'll talk about Lower Decks on Thursday, 7:30 p.m. So be there or be square. I'm your most excellent host, Uncle Jim, saying thanks for being with us. Be safe and be good to each other. Good night, everybody. Killing frequency. Arc. Live, live long and prosper. Let's see what's out there. Engage. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.